Well, it is good to be in the Lord's house together. And uh, for some of you, you may feel like this is too early to be in the Lord's house. Uh, but normal will will eventually come, and then we'll change it all up again to keep you guessing, right? But the next time, just be thankful we gain an hour and not lose it. So, so, uh, so encouraging to come and sing together and rejoice together and look at God's word together. And so thankful for you being here uh, this morning. We have uh, went through a long study in Hebrews, uh, and so. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to the letter of Philippians. I'm not going to say one of the things I was looking for. The main things I was looking for, where to go next, was a smaller book. But it was in my mind, the back of my mind, a, a shorter book, but something that would be um, encouraging and beneficial for us. As you find your place in Philippians, uh, let me just say a word about the ladies' uh, conference retreat coming up. Uh, ladies, if you know you're going, the best way you can love Carol and care for her and the other ladies that are organizing this event is sign up for that. Uh, so you can do that right after church. You can register online. You can pay online. All that's available for you. But go ahead and get that taken care of so the ladies have an idea who's coming uh, and uh, they'll be able to uh, to be able to make the plans and preparations they need to make uh, as they uh, uh do all the things that they have to do. So sign up. If you have someone in your family or, or someone near us in the community, uh, won't you invite them to come? It's open to them as well. So invite them to come and, and take part of that. Uh, and I do want to mention again, our communion service tonight will be at 6 o'clock. <clears throat> Philippians chapter number 1, uh, we have, um, and I have personally, even this morning, been so encouraged by our uh, the prayers that have already been prayed, I almost feel like we ought not uh, uh, to, to pray again, but uh, I'm going to ask you if you would just take a moment and pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, what a joy it is to be in your house, what a joy it is to have your word. I pray that you would speak to us and encourage us uh, and use this to challenge us in the ways we need to be challenged. Encourage us in ways we need to be encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, I know that uh, we are living in troubled time. We see constantly news of what's going on in Europe and the unrest, and we read the headlines, and maybe you're like me, and you're hoping that the next one they come out or the next news cycle or news anchor will say something like it's all over. And then we can feel like we can go on about our lives, some kind of normal. And yet it's not the case. We're constantly bombarded with it. And it impacts us. It affects us emotionally. It affects us mentally. It makes us wonder. And to add to the calamity of that, we face all of the disgruntled things and, and discouraging things that we're facing in our country, all the uncertainties and, and all the things that leave us unsettled the rising of gas prices and inflation and all the other things how in the world are we going to make it through that these are questions grown-ups ask i guess but i think children ask it in their own way and sometimes being a father uh, having children and a grandparent or uh, 
you kind of wonder what will the future be like for our children and our grandchildren. How are we going to live if things get worse? Maybe you don't even need children to ask that question. All of these fears uh, are, are multiplied right now in, in the world that we live in. And it is no surprise that we have been living uh, really bombarded with fears for some time. We might say over the past couple of years. Constantly worrying and fretting and stressing and, and not only feeling the weight of things being out of our control. How many of you feel that way? So much in your life, so much around us that we are informed by that we have very little control over. And so you deal with that and you face that and the uncertainty that all of that brings. And then you add to the mix that your own petty little personal problems, which are not kind of petty. They're weighty, the things that you face in the immediate life that oftentimes come reminding us that we have even less control than we thought beforehand. Well, you may say this morning that's a very fine way of starting a sermon on the book of Philippians. But it is a reminder that we need a letter like the letter of Philippians, a breath of fresh air to us and uh, from a veteran who himself faced a, a world of problems, living even as he wrote this letter, living at a time where he himself faced uncertainty of the outcome of his very life, persecuted when it seems like, at least on the outside, that everything should go well for him because he is working and striving for the good of others. And yet, every time you turn around, he's in a jail or being beaten or shipwrecked or whatever else is going on in his life. Yet it is from his hand that we have one of the most endearing personal letters in the Bible, this letter to the book of Philippians. It reminds us of the joy and the hope the assurance and the fellowship that we have in the Christian faith. These are the very things that you and I need to be reminded of uh, in this time we live. The letter of Philippians is one of four letters Paul wrote while he was in prison. And as you read the letter, you have to remind yourself, though he does remind you throughout it, that he is in prison because he writes as a free man. Uh, though he's in chains and he has his Roman guard and he's... He has all of his limitations. He writes as if he is free, both in, in spirit and in body. It is one of four prison epistles wrote uh, during the time of his imprisonment in Rome over a four-year period of time. And as he spent having appealed to Caesar for, uh, for the defense of the gospel, his life was in danger. And so he appealed to come before Caesar uh, to give a defense of why he was in prison. Because he was a Roman citizen, he was granted that privilege, and that privilege came with a four-year setback in his life, or what we might call a setback, having to be imprisoned. Other letters, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, uh, or other letters that we have in, our work, in the Bible that are letters that he has given to us in this state. Uh, the letter is is a reminder some 10 years after the fact of him planting the church in Philippi. It was an event recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapter number 16. 
It was there that Paul began to preach the gospel first in Europe and then it would spread out to other places in the region of Macedonia. It's remarkable because as Paul comes down to the river on the Lord's Day and begins preaching the gospel, he meets a woman, a seller of purple, Lydia, and preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit opens the heart of Lydia to to understand the message of Paul, pay attention, and she was gloriously saved, baptized, her and her household. The most remarkable account of the of the imprisonment is the story shortly after Paul cast out a demon from a woman. He is in jail. It's something common of him. He finds himself in the local jail. Someone said he doesn't go check the motel. He goes see how the conditions in the local jail is when he begins his missionary journey because he feels like he's going to end up there. Yet as he's in prison singing hymns and praising God with Silas, the Bible says that the gel and the earth was quaking, the shackles were unloosened, and the doors were open. And the jailer saved, gloriously saved. Is there any other way to be saved? Gloriously saved, baptized, and that is the beginning of the church. The church of Macedonia, Philippi, had a history with Paul of supporting and encouraging him on his missionary journey as he was in Thessalonica and then throughout his his uh, missionary, missionary endeavors, and it is here that uh, that they again have communicated, and by that they just simply sent a gift to Paul in his imprisonment, and uh, and hoping to support him and encourage him along the way. Some suggest for us that the letter is a a response to this gift. It's a thank you letter for what you have given to us, and and how you have supported me in the ministry here. You see that in chapter number four as you get to the end of the letter. Others have suggested as we look at the the book of Philippians, we we understand it as an explanation of how Paul is doing. I remember a pastor friend of mine, some things are going on in his ministry and changes, and I just sent him a text and I said, how are you doing? So he sent me uh, a response back and so maybe this is what Paul is doing in Philippians he's just responding giving an update on his ministry and how things are going others suggest it's a preparation for Epaphroditus who had sent the letter and and then Timothy who would then come to them I like what William Barclay says he says it is a letter of the most excellent thing You see that in the very introduction that we read in the 11 verses that Greg read for us. Of the joy and thanksgiving of the excellent things that you find throughout this letter. Uh, It is even in your own personal reading and in your time that I encourage you to do that this week. As you read through that, you're captivated by the things that Paul is captivated by. He he carries our attention and mind to excellent truths and realities that, that we need to see and hear. And be refreshed by. And yet the letter itself, the most prevalent theme throughout it is joy. It is the epistle of joy. Uh, It is expressed in Paul's life. You see that when he begins writing, I thank my God in all remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Over and over speaking about his affection and his heart and rejoice and and the gladness found in God. It is an 
It's not a manual per se of joy and how to find joy, though as you read through this, Paul's joy is contagious. And at the end you find he tells us in chapter number 4, rejoice. Maybe best summed up as we read in chapter number 2, turn over there with me. Verse 17 and 18, he says, For if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice, sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Verse 18, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It is an expression of Paul's own joy and his own rejoicing, and it is a command and call and encouragement for you and I to rejoice with him. Joy is contagious, isn't it? It, it is something that, that we, we not only see in other people, but we desire and we, we want to copy. But here you see with the Apostle Paul and his imprisonment, it is not just a, a trivial matter that, he, that we see in his life, but it is an unconquerable joy in all circumstances of his life. That what makes it so attractive. Again, William Barclay says this, if Christianity does not make us happy, it does not make us anything at all. What do you think about that statement? Hey, don't respond back to me, but it is worth thinking about, isn't it? Is Christianity meant to make us happy? Now, for some of us, we say, absolutely, there's happiness found in the Lord. We rejoice and there's gladness and goodness found in in the Christian faith. It is meant to bring about that in our lives. But we have to understand that happiness in our society and that kind of happiness that Barclay is talking about is two different things. We think of happiness as silliness or kind of a cavalier attitude, something that is that is dependent upon all of our surroundings and circumstances in life. The sun is shining at 75 degrees and and you're feeling great. If that's our measure for happiness, then all of us came here this morning very glim and depressed because none of those things are true. Well, they are somewhere, I'm sure, but not here. So happiness has become to be understood as, as... a manageable time, doing something that we enjoy. This makes us happy, and so we're, we're happy in the moment. But I think what we see in the Apostle Paul is, is something beyond that, something deeper in his own life, which we refer to as Christian joy. Britannica states this in the New Testament testimonials, joy appears to be the characteristic mark of distinction of the Christian. Joy appears to be a characteristic mark of distinction of the Christian. Now, I don't think, I don't know who wrote that, but I don't think that means that every moment of our life is free from sorrow, do you? The Bible teaches us and it reminds us that there are times of deep grieving. 
Peter even speaks about troubles in our own soul through various trials and and grief that comes with that. There's a whole section of psalms, a a large portion of our psalms are, are given to us as psalms of lament, how to weep and mourn. And, and believe and trust God through those. One book in the Bible is called the book of Lamentations. It is the one when we're in our reading, we have to hurry up and flip to a, a joyful passage. Maybe Philippians right after that because it's so weighty. And yet the Bible is not dismissing the reality of mourning. But it says even with the mourning under it, helping us, pulling us through that, encouraging us, stabling us, is this unyielding hope and promise in God for the Christian. There's joy. It's not silliness. It's not a bumper sticker. It's serious. It's stable, and it's rooted in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to look at these few verses with us this morning. Uh, by way of a few statements. One, I want us to consider the source of the Christian joy, and then I want us to consider several things that the Word of God gives us here that we find joy in, or God feels our joy with. Notice, first of all, joy is a gift from God. Where does joy come from? Well, it comes from God, the short answer. Joy is both a gift of God as well as a response to the gifts of God. Notice the first two verses as, as Paul introduces himself in this letter. He, he describes himself in relationship to God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ or slaves of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi and the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul could say to Paul, a a slave, a prisoner of Rome, Paul, all the other things that he can name himself and actually see in chapter number three that he does give a list of things that he uses or at least used in his life to identify himself. He was a a Jew of Benjamin and all the other things that he goes through. But here he, he begins this letter with the designation of saying his identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who he is. And what he's about. He is a servant of Jesus Christ. Now we should expect Paul to say that. He after all is an apostle. But notice how he describes the church. He says now to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And we oftentimes speak about the Philippians. And we designate them, and that is who they are to us. That, that bears their identity. And we know what that is. We we might not affirm ourselves as New Yorkers sometimes, but we all live in the state of New York. We paid New York taxes, and so you're New Yorkers. Is that how that works? Some of you are visiting from other parts, and, and so you don't have that designation. Nevertheless, we know what that means. But here he doesn't say it like that. He wants them to understand their, their identity, the relationship, who they are as relationship to Jesus Christ. He says, you're in Christ, not only in Christ, but you're saints. You're the holy ones. When you're in high school, maybe in public school, that doesn't have a very um, kind connotation to it. We don't think pleasant thoughts when we hear holy ones. It's usually always in a negative sense, right? Some of you remember those days. Holier than thou, we use that kind of language. But what is he saying here? He's saying, who are you? 
you're not just Philippians, you're not just Roman citizens, which would have been admired and, and coveted that designation of being a Roman citizen. He says, no, you're saints in Christ Jesus. You preside, you abide in a location in Philippi. That's where the church is located. But you yourself, your citizenship, your identity is found somewhere else. While we may pay New York taxes, we may live in New York and all the other things that go along, we're saints, the church of God in this location in New York. He's wanting them to understand themselves in, in relationship to Christ Jesus, the holy ones, the church which is founded here in Philippi. Reminding us that, that joy is rooted in our identity in Christ, what he has done for us. He has sanctified us and he has set us apart in Christ Jesus. He has given us a new life and a new name and a, and a new identity. But not only do we see that in verse number one, notice with me in verse two, he says we share, we have this, this blessedness, this joy which comes from the gifts that God gives us. And what are they? Well, he says it here in verse number two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the gifts of God to us? Grace and peace. God's unmerited favor. The smile of God towards you. The favor of God given to you, not because of what you've earned, not because it's all the other stuff that we get wrapped up in, but out of his goodness and mercy, out of his graciousness towards us, grace and peace. It is this that brings joy in our lives. It is this that is the source of the Christian joy. And that is right relationship, fellowship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, we might say our joy is a Trinitarian work. All of God together working in unity to produce joy in our life. It is, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. Galatians tells us part of the fruit of the Spirit is one it's joy joy one theologian stated it this way joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the holy spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of christ in the word and in the world joy is the trinity at work in us it is a gift of grace secured for us at calvary the result of fellowship with christ and assured by God, through his word, a future grace to come. God is the source of the Christian joy. He is the source of our joy. But notice here he goes further as he begins this Thanksgiving section. As he speaks about the joy we have in our fellowship. Verse number 5. Well, let's read 3 through 5. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. You know, we can learn a great deal about how we think about people, how we care about them, and the way we talk about them, and the way we talk to them. To put it another way, it's hard to communicate I love you, hon, when I am being mean in my words and my voice and my actions is always demeaning, isn't it? And the reason I say that is the way that Paul brings this congregation up 
in his uh, in his mind, not only in his mind, the way he communicates to them what they mean to him. He he reminds them that the partnership that they have in the gospel, that, that the relationship which they share is a relationship of thanksgiving. It is a source of joy for the apostle. He is thankful for them. He is remembering them and thinking of them, which produces, stirs up joy in his heart and in his life. You see that in the very way he speaks of them, not demeaning, but calls them partners in the gospel. The word in verse number five is the word koinonia means fellowship or communion. It means sharing. And and so here he's speaking to a church that has a fellowship with him, is communing with him as a share in uh, in his ministry as they minister together. I remember Tennessee, there was a ministry which had a Sunday night ministry they called Koinonia. And I don't know why they called it that. We have uh, trouble saying stuff like that in the South, but nevertheless, they called it Koinonia. My cousin went to that quite often. It was just simply a, a church service is all it was. They got up, they sang, some guy taught, they took up an offering, they went home. That's, that's pretty much all it was. And so, you know, he was talking about this and building it up, and it's like that's kind of missing the fullness of what koinonia is, what fellowship is, what sharing is. And the sharing of their life, the sharing of their goods we find in the book of Acts, but here he's speaking of sharing in the workload of the ministry, sharing in the ministry, and he says we have a we have a partnership in the gospel. Your partners with him in the gospel. And there is a sense that they share in the benefit of the gospel. And that's true of all of us here this morning. Every saint has a share in the peace and grace that are offered to us in Jesus Christ. That is to be had among all of God's people. There's a, there's a reality that we all share from the benefits Christ purchased for us at the cross. That forgiveness of sin and justification, righteousness. We have all freely received, not based upon our own merit, but based upon the goodness of God given to us at Calvary. And through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we all have an equal share. But here he's, he's speaking about sharing in the sense that they have continually been part of his ministry they continually given to him and the needs in which he has had over and over they they stood as an example to the corinthian church in second corinthians of this is what giving is look at the macedonians who gave of themselves and out of their poverty stirring up the corinthians to give into the lord's work now for us i think we best understand this in a relationship between church and missionaries don't we we bring them in, we hear their mission work, and and we send them out and we share in them as we support them and as we pray for them. We're not where they are, but, but we are part of their ministry. We're working in a partnership together for the gospel, for the furtherance of the gospel. But what I want to say this morning is, look around you. In reality, we should see this is true of each of us here this morning, sharing in the work of the gospel. 
sharing in the ministry which God has given us. Uh, look at us as a church and, and look across the aisle and, and think of it this way, that we are partners together for the good uh, in the grace of God and in the gospel work. We're in this together. And there's certain things that I think flow out of this. It, as he speaks about it being a gospel work, it is the same desired end. That the name of Christ would be magnified, that people would learn of, of the gospel and turn and, and believe in Christ and be saved and grow into maturity. At the end, it's all the same work. But there's a diversity of responsibilities. Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, reminded them that they were caught up on who was better among them, which speaker was better, which leader was better, which pastor was better, which missionary was better. Some like Paul, some like Apollos. He was a nice uh, and, and eloquent orator. And, and some like Peter because he was Jewish. He was apostle to the Jews. Some like Jesus because that was more religious and more righteous. You know, just bypass all the other guys and go straight to Jesus. He's my leader. And yet Paul tells them and reminds them that all of these ministers are ministering together for the same goal. But he says even in that definition, even in that example, he says that he did a task and Apollos did a task. Paul planted the church and it was Apollos who came and watered the church, but it was God who gave the increase. And so likewise among us, not just thinking in the sense of preaching or teaching or any of those things, that we each have again been given, gifted for different responsibilities in the work of God. We don't all do the same thing. That would be, that would be kind of weird and leave a lot of holes in the ministry work. But we all work for the same end and for the same goal, doing what God has gifted us and enabled us to do. It is God who gives the increase for his glory. But I also want to know, not only is there a diversity in responsibility, it's not valued on role. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, the Philippians did give Paul a gift. They did give him resources to that. But after all, it was Paul who was the one in prison. It was Paul whose life was on the line. It was Paul who was the apostle and given revelation. He, he was the great teacher and leader, so, so maybe Paul's part was more significant than the other part. But he doesn't, he doesn't give us the air that, that he's basing their value or their importance on, on what role a person has, what gift or what work that they do. In fact, when you see Paul speaking of the congregation, look at it with me, he speaks in the most endearing terms, almost exalting them in his own mind in his conversation. He says, I, I con constantly remember you, and when I do, I'm thankful for, for you, praying with joy. And he goes on and speaks about them in verse number 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers of me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse number 8, he reminds us that he yearns for them with all the affection of Jesus Christ. You see an endearing relationship that he has with this church in Philippi. Thankful, joyful, remembrance. 
And the reason I say this is just to be reminded that it is God who keeps records of what we do and how we serve. It is an encouragement to us in any part that God gives us, whatever, however great or however small it is, that it, anything can be done for his glory and for his honor. And Jesus, even pointing this out in the Gospels, as he says, even a cup of water given in my name will not go unnoticed from my heavenly Father and will receive a reward. Sometimes we get lopsided in the Christian church. If we think of service and partnership and joy and weight in those matters, then, then there is little joy to be had because there is a, an overwhelming sense of insignificance and inferiority that can sneak up on us. Oftentimes, I think, a, a, a work of the devil himself. Yet in the midst of it all, there is joy to be found that I can give a cup of water in the name of Christ for his glory and his honor. You remember when... Jesus was standing in the temple and all the guys were coming and giving their gifts. He doesn't stop traffic until the woman comes who had and gave everything she had, just the two pennies that she had. And he says, this widow gave more than any of them to the disciples. Why does he say that? Well, because he's telling the disciples to, uh, to, to do that in one sense, but to not judge the way we normally judge things. To value and judge things the way God judges things. You see, he's not speaking about partnership in the sense of value. The joy is common that we can all serve and be part of God's ministry as we serve together. And it takes all of us serving together to get the job done. Amen? I also want us to know not only a joy in our fellowship and our partnership, but I also want us to know a joy in our confidence. Look at verse number six with me. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You could almost, we could just bow our heads and just go home. I was telling the MC staff um, the other day, I think it was Tuesday, as we were meeting, I said, here it is, this lies, this verse gives us the assurance of the success of the mission that God has called us to. That Christ, God himself, will finish what he started in each of us. This is a language, as some suggest, the language of sacrifice, the Beginning and the end here, or completion, is, is suggestive of the beginning and finish work of offering a sacrifice to God. Some look at this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 6 as, as this giving or, or communicating the gift that they've given to them. And maybe as suggested here, Paul is telling them that, that as you began to communicate and partner with the gospel, God will finish this work in you. Until the day of Jesus Christ. I think it means something more than that. I think it means beyond the gift that you give. But the grace which produced that gift and partnership. Here I believe he's referring to the, the work of God in them. Securing them. Saving them. Finishing that work. And when all the way until the day of the Lord. Verse number 6 says. There is a reality that we find joy in, in this statement here. 
and the security that Jesus will finish what he started in us. I know that most of, and many people have, and most of us as we look to ourselves, as we doubt the assurance of our salvation, as we fiddle around with our own works and our own goodness and our own merit, end up finding ourselves very miserable. Why? Because we make miserable saviors. Because we fall short and we are constantly reminded, I don't know about you, but I have a sinful nature and I'm constantly reminded that I miss the mark all the time. And my very salvation, if it was up to me, depended upon me, rested upon me, is, is no security for me to take comfort in. Now, some days I, I may feel like I get it right and it's kind of joyful in that moment, but there's many days where I'm reminded that I am weak and I need a Savior. There's something here given to us in this confidence that as God has began this work in us, maybe it's the work in the church itself, but, but the work in us individually, that he will finish it. He who started it will bring it to completion. Just reminding us back at the start of the church in Acts chapter number 16, verses 14 through 15, that it was God who started the work among them. Speaking of Lydia, it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul after she was baptized in her household as well. Can I say this morning that it was God who moved towards us? It was God who moved our way and opened our eyes, convicted our hearts. It was God who did that work. He's always the initiator. initiator. Ephesians 2 reminds us that while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, it was God who has quickened us and made us alive in Christ Jesus. We did not save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. That is the doctrine of election and predestination. Ephesians 1, and what it tells me is that God has set his love upon you, saint, this morning before the foundation of the world. Now, you may not know how all that works. Let me just say this. God did not leave his will and his plan in obscurity. But he went further by manifesting his love that he set upon us in the coming of Christ into the world. That's what Romans 5 says, that while we were yet sinners, while we were in our sin, God manifested his love towards us, giving us his son. Not only did he manifest his love in the coming of Christ, but commission of the church to carry out the gospel to the ends of the earth. Some 2,000 years ago as he sent forth his small band of followers to turn the world upside down. Generation after generation, year after year, continent after continent, until somewhere along the line some school bus driver decided to knock on the door and see if a bunch of kids wanted to go to Sunday school. Or your friend who had been praying for you for a long time, witnessing to you for a long time, finally invited you to come to a meeting or come to church to hear the gospel, hear the word of God. Or your faithful parent continually, faithfully bringing you to church, exposing you to the, what God has done through us through Christ Jesus. 
or that moment in your life when your coworker finally come and just shared their faith with you boldly, praying for you as they did. All of our all of our stories or testimonies are different in many ways. But in this way, in the fact that it is God who began that work in us, who opened our heart and opened our eyes to the gospel, all of us share that in common. And why is that so confident? Because God finishes what he starts. That's what he's saying here, that, that I'm sure of this, I'm confident, I'm persuaded of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Not just our saving not just our initial being saved, but our sanctification, the final glorification, rest in the power of God to finish what he started. I don't know about you, but that is a joyful, joyful truth as we think about what God has done for us. Romans 8, 29 and 30, often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. I'll read it for you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As much could be said about this and much ink that has been spilled over these words. But I just want you to just look at the last two. Let me read the last two points again. Those whom he justified he also glorified. Not only our justification resting in him, but our glorification assured by him. God will not lose his own. Amen? And think about how that counters the fear we face in this world and the uncertainty. What's tomorrow going to hold? What's, what's the world going to be like? What's the future going to be like? How, how am I going to make it through all of this? And yet in the midst of that, we find joy not in the uncertainty, but in the things that we can be sure of and certain of. And this is one of those great glorious truths that we can be certain that he who began the good work in us will bring it to completion, will finish it at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even the latter part of verse number 6 is a great confidence and assurance that it will not always be like this. There is a day of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day of his second coming, a day of his return, when he will make all things right. That's what we long for, isn't it? First to that in Titus, that blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A great part of our frustration and misery often arises from our lack of insurance and it is in large part because we fail to understand God's grace. It's because we're looking at ourselves too much. Trusting in ourselves. Asking too much of ourselves in some ways instead of looking to Christ. Some of you may recall Spurgeon's great testimony that he gives. It's only great because it involves snow and cold weather and a storm so it's kind of could be ours in one way. That wintry night on a Wednesday as he went in that little Methodist church and he heard that preacher not so eloquently delivering a sermon out of Isaiah, but the whole thrust of it was look to Jesus, look to God and live. And during that moment, during that time in his life, he looked to Christ and found new life. And that gives us great comfort and joy as we consider as he who began that new life in us will finish it. 
We can't be sure of everything, but there are things we can be sure of, and that is that he will finish what he started. Amen. But joy is a gift to us from God and given to us in fellowship, from fellowship with Jesus Christ and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And joy is, is present in the partnership we have in the gospel with one another. And even in times of tension, when that, that, that joy is not being produced, the lack of it reminds us that there is joy in fellowship and partnership in the gospel. The reason I bring that up is I want you to think about that when you pray for each other. What a joy it is to be in the body of Christ together, serving together. There's joy in the confidence of our salvation that he will finish what he started. Well, do you know and do you experience the joy found in Christ this morning? Do you have joy, true Christian joy? Does it mark your life? Not in the absence of sorrow, but sometimes as we, we fix our eyes on him, sometimes as we fix our eyes on the, the comfort and the confidences that he gives to us, doesn't it stir in our hearts that joy, that longing of being in him? And just be honest, this was such a needed message and such a needed, needed passage for my own heart as I began this week, a little slow and sluggish. But as you begin, being reminded of these things and how the Spirit of God works and stirs our heart to joy and peace and comfort. Bow with me just for a moment. <clears throat> Lord, as we gather together this morning, we pray for those here that don't have that joy. Or they don't have that fellowship with Christ and that is where joy begins turning from ourselves and turning to you it is knowing that we have been forgiven and been made right with you it's the foundation of of our joy I just pray that you would work in their hearts bring them to Christ Lord I pray for each of us as we deal with the world and the life that you've given us and, and in this time that you've put us that you Remind us of your presence, your joy, fullness that we, we experience of you being with us. So thankful for the fellowship that you give us with one another and the partnership and, and the work you've called us to. And well, thank you for the confidence that you will finish what you start in Jesus' name. Amen.